Today on Something You Should Know, the little tricks restaurants use to get you to spend more money. Then, how the internet has given you so much more power as a consumer compared to the way it used to be. Where we were passive consumers and the business was the supplier. Um, and if we wanted to talk with them, we basically couldn't in the old days. You either call up customer support or whatever, but you were isolated. You go online and if the business won't talk to you, the other customers will. Then, the little behaviors you do that have a big impact on what people think of you and why experts so often get it wrong when they try to solve a problem. Look at the types of experts who are working on it, because experts are only experts in their own tightly bounded area. And if they stray just a little bit out of that, they're no better than ordinary mortals. All this today on Something You Should Know. Microsoft Teams is helping a bicycle company reinvent the way that they work. We make bicycles for everyday riders. Once the pandemic hit, we started doing virtual visits. All of a sudden, we could open up our showroom to customers around the world. Learn more at Microsoft.com Teams. Something you should know. Fascinating intel. The world's top experts. And practical advice you can use in your life. Today, Something You Should Know with Mike Carruthers. Hi, welcome to Something You Should Know. If you dine out much, I'm about to save you some money or potentially save you some money by revealing some of the tricks that restaurants use to get you to spend more. They do this primarily with the menu, and if you know them, you may be less likely to fall for them. For example, if there are no prices listed, there's a good chance you will spend more. A lot of people don't feel comfortable asking about prices for the food on a menu, but you wouldn't go to a department store and buy a sweater and not know the price of it, so why would you buy a meal and not know the price of it before you get it? Just the absence of a dollar sign can increase profits for a restaurant. You know when they sometimes they'll put the price of an entree or an appetizer, but there's no dollar sign in front of it. It's just the number. Well, research shows that diners spend 8% more when there is no dollar sign. Tangy, zesty, succulent, and crispy. Those are some powerful menu words. Because if the menu can get your mouth watering with words like that, you will spend more money. And restaurants like to use boxes on their menu. They'll often highlight things like high-profit items or more expensive items in decorative boxes, which draws your eye to them. And there's the old trick of inflating the price of the second cheapest wine. This is restaurant psychology at its best here, because a lot of people don't want to buy the really expensive wine, but they don't want to seem too cheap either, so they pick the second cheapest wine. Restaurants know this, and they mark that bottle up a lot. And that is something you should know. Until recently, as a consumer, the way you have done business hasn't really changed much in a very long time. Businesses would offer you products and services that they thought you would like, and you could either buy them or not. And if not, maybe you would buy them somewhere else, or or maybe you would buy something similar instead. With the internet now, that model has all changed. You as a consumer have a lot more choices at your fingertips. You also have a forum to rate your experiences as a consumer. And as a business person offering products and services, 
you now have this tremendous ability to tap into your consumers and find out what they want or don't want, what they like or don't like, and what they think of it all. In many ways, it is a huge change with a lot of ramifications. And here to dive deep into this fascinating new world is David Weinberger. David has been a strategic marketing VP, a writer in residence at Google. He is a researcher and author, and his new book is called Everyday Chaos, Technology, Complexity, and How We're Thriving in a New World of Possibility. Hi, David. Hi, Michael. It seems that this new way of doing business has kind of crept up on us in many ways. So let me have you explain it better and deeper with some examples to start. So one of the examples that I I think is particularly helpful is you you look at um, Henry Ford, you know, pre-internet. And he's just this master of anticipating what his customers are going to want in a Model T. And he nails it so exactly. 1908, he basically does not change the thing for 19 years. (laughs) He sells 15 (laughs) million of them. So, you know, pretty awesome job. They're going to want the car to ride high because they're riding over horse trails. None of them basically know how to drive a car. So the UI has to be really simple. He just nails it. And we, of course, we continue to do that and we'll continue to do that. But we're also doing this other thing simultaneously, a bunch of other things. So one of them is the minimum viable product idea, which a lot of software companies, services on the internet have adopted. So rather than figuring out exactly what your customers are going to need, you figure out the one thing, the key feature, you know, so the big idea for your product, and you launch only with that single feature. You do this so that you can then measure what people are doing. You can ask them, you can watch them, you can listen to how they are talking with one another and see what users actually want. Not what you're guessing they want, but what they actually want. And they probably don't know what they want until they have the product in their hands. Right? Um, this turns out to be, in many instances, a really successful way of launching a product. It is not Henry Ford's way. The MVPs work because they consciously refuse to anticipate. They hold back, refrain from anticipation. It's unanticipation. And what's a good example of that today? Henry Ford did it his way in his day. Who's doing that well, the, the minimally viable product idea, and hitting it out of the park? Uh, Dropbox is one. Slack is another. I mean, Dropbox started uh, as a, here's the big idea. You'll be able to work on your, your files anywhere. And then over time, they saw what people needed. And now you can do multimedia. You can collaborate online. They, you can uh, do revision tracking. They just keep adding features in response to what their users actually want. But Slack's actually an example of another thing as well. So Slack is a messaging app, very popular um, for teams, sometimes in very big companies. So it started as an MVP, but they also did this other thing, which is uh, increasingly common and is so so filled with unanticipation. Um, so they have a fully formed product. They also now have and have had for a long time a, an open platform, an API technically, which allows any developer any anywhere in the world, anybody connected to the web to take Slack's product and to extend it, to alter it, to integrate that product, Slack, into the rest of that developer's um, client's set of tools for work, into their workflow. Slack did this. In fact, Slack set up an $80 million fund to encourage people to do this because it, it means that Slack does not have to anticipate every conceivable feature or tweak that somebody might want because they can't. And if they could, they wouldn't have the, the resources to implement them. 
everything. And it means that Slack can become deeply integrated into the working tool set of multiple, multiple clients without Slack having to figure out what all those other tools are and make the changes. And it's, it extends the functionality of Slack. It makes Slack a, an integral part of a workflow and thus more valuable. And these sorts of open platforms are, are all over the place. Facebook has had one for a while. People build things on it. Um, lots of nonprofits do this. New York Times has an open platform. Um, I, I helped uh, produce one for the Harvard Library System uh, that makes resources that are already available more widely available. But can you take that model at, offline and does it work with widgets or it only works online with open platforms? Well, it's, uh, it's an interesting question. So it, it's much easier to do this. All these things are easier to do. And, and many of these changes, I think, and how we think about how the world works, how complex it is and how, how we deal with the future are coming about because the connected digital world is so fluid. I'll, I'll give you an example. I, you know, so um, cause and effect is, is, you know, is a real thing and it has real laws and um, it's, it's really sort of, um, sort of important. But cause and effect is, in, we can see in this in this new world, is just one way in which things interact. Particularly important one, of course, but it's one way in which things interact. And online, the internet is is exists only, well, only is too strong. The internet exists as a way of allowing pieces to interact with other pieces. It's interoperability is what it's called, right? So that's what makes the internet a an open, fluid environment in which everything can move around. You can reuse stuff and repurpose it and the rest of it. Offline, that that's harder. I, I'd say it's the same thing that we see happening overall with the internet and the real world, um, where online businesses have been, I think, for at least the past decade, to a large extent, driving the way the offline parts of the business thinks about itself. Uh, overall, there's more customer interaction, more customer listening to customers, more involvement of customers in product early product design cycles, um, more feedback from customers, more bringing customers together to interact with one another and learning from them, and doing that both online and offline. But it always seems to me that businesses are uh, offline businesses are doing that uh, not so much because they want to, but because they have to. Because the online businesses are so touchy-feely with their customers, I guess we better do it too. Yes, there's a lot of reluctance to engage in all of these new, um, not just uh, tactics and, and programs, but also ways of thinking about things. I, I think the net and now machine learning are changing our ideas about how things go together. And there's tremendous resistance. There's resist has been resistance in each uh, sector. And there's offline resistance as well, for sure. But you have to ask, why is the pressure there? Why has the internet so reshaped our ideas about um, what it means to be a customer, what it means to be a, a business, and what the relationship should be, that offline feels, even though it doesn't want to, it doesn't like it, it thinks it's all just touchy-feely stuff, nevertheless, they feel obliged to, to start engaging in ways that they may not be very comfortable with. So even if you're a business that is traditionally thought of as an offline business, you still need to incorporate some component of online something in order to stay competitive. 
Yes, I think I think that's right. I, I think online has shaped our understanding of what our relationship to a business is. We are less patient, I think, offline uh, with the um, impersonal and, um, well, let's say impersonal um, mass relationships that we used to only have, where we were passive consumers and the business was the supplier. Um, and if we wanted to talk with them, we basically couldn't in the old days. You'd either call up customer support or whatever, but you were isolated. You go online and if the business won't talk to you, the other customers will. Uh, sometimes, often, very, very happily in exploring new ways of using a product, but also when they're not happy, uh, talking with another with one another in that way as well. And once you get, and that's a sense, I think that gives customers, has given customers already a sense of of power and and agency. We're, we're not the passive recipients of things. We have a voice as well. We can have an influence and we can affect by, by sharing knowledge and ideas among customers. We can, we can change the way that we use products. We can even make uh, changes to products. We got used to the idea that there isn't a single source of information about products and that source is the business and the source only wants to tell us what it wants us to know. Those days are way over. That's been over for 20 years. That has given us customers, all of us, I think, a, a very different idea of our relationship to the business. And we, it doesn't stop at the edge of the internet. It continues out into the real world. It has changed our understanding. But is that coming back in a sense when I think of the retail business? I mean, Amazon is so dominant that it seems like they can do whatever they want. Yeah, I mean, the internet has slipped um, all too easily into a sort of re-centralization of, of big powers. That's regrettable. At the same time, the way that Amazon customers interact with one another on the site and off the site to decide what product they want to buy or how to get this thing to work or, the, you know, the, um, what else they can do with it or does this car really work in a Boston winter, all that sort of stuff, whether it's coming through a giant like Amazon or from a local car dealership, we expect now to be able to deal with other customers and get honest answers about that power relationship. I think the change in that power relationship, I think, who knows, I think is permanent even as there's this tremendous centralization of power in retail and other sectors as well. I'm speaking with David Weinberger, and his book is called Everyday Chaos, Technology, Complexity, and How We're Thriving in a New World of Possibility. You know, there are times in everyone's life, I don't care who you are, there are times when something interferes with your happiness or prevents you from achieving your goal. If that's happening to you, BetterHelp Online Counseling is there for you. BetterHelp offers licensed professional counselors who are specialized in issues such as depression, stress, relationships, anxiety, family conflicts, grief, and so much more. This is such a great idea. You connect with your professional counselor in a safe, private, online environment. Anything you share is confidential. And it's convenient. You can schedule secure video or phone sessions, plus chat and text with your therapist. And if you're not happy with the counselor, you can request a new one at any time for no charge. Because the right counselor really matters. Best of all, it's a truly affordable option. And for something you should know, listeners, you can get 10% off your first month 
with the discount code SYSK for something you should know. So why not get started today? Go to betterhelp.com SYSK. You simply fill out a questionnaire to help them assess your needs and get matched with a counselor you will love. BetterHelp.com SYSK. Do you own or rent your home? Sure you do. And I bet it can be hard work. You know what's easy? Bundling policies with GEICO. GEICO makes it easy to bundle your homeowner's or renter's insurance along with your auto policy. It's a good thing, too, because you already have so much to do around your home. Go to Geico.com to get a quote and see how much you could save. It's Geico easy. Visit Geico.com today. That's Geico.com. So you own or rent your home, right? Sure you do. And I bet it can be hard work. You know what's easy? Bundling policies with Geico. Geico makes it easy to bundle your homeowner's or renter's insurance along with your auto policy. It's a good thing, too, because you already have so much to do around your home. Go to Geico.com, get a quote, and see how much you could save. It's Geico easy. Visit Geico.com today. That's Geico.com. So, David, now I'm asking you to predict the future, but what... Where is the next step in this evolution, if if there is one? I'm old enough to know that I don't know what's going to happen. But I think that <laughs> especially with the rise of machine learning and the way that machine learning thinks about the world, I think that is, in fact, bringing us to an evolutionary step. So we got used to the chaos and information overload, which we continue to not just not to flee from, but to demand. We want more and more information. The Internet got us used to that environment an environment in which, in various ways, um, we've gotten used to the idea that we will open up more possibilities, we will do what we can in order to make things more reusable um, as individuals and as businesses. We want more and more possibilities rather than a narrowing of possibilities. Machine learning, I think, is giving us a way of understanding that in, in some sense um, and uh, giving us a different model of how the world works. And I think that we are well down the path of accepting that implicitly. Since you brought up machine learning, artificial intelligence a moment ago, explain how that fits into this discussion. So a normal computer, when you want to program it to do something, whether let's say it's to uh, predict quarterly sales, you tell it what the main factors are. Number of salespeople, number of leads, incentives, all the rest of that. And then you tell it how those factors are related. So maybe if you increase incentives, maybe you'll get more sales, but that will have, et cetera. That's a model, right? It's You specify the factors and the relationships. Um, with machine learning, you don't do that. This is why it's really a big step. You do not have a human say, okay, here's what we think the relationships are. Instead, you just give it this huge bag full of data millions and millions of data points if you can. And then it uses math stuff to go through and find statistical relationships among the parts and the part, the little data, you know, parts or little pieces of data um, in all their relationships with the other pieces of data. Sort of weighted relationships, uh, probabilistic correlations from this point to 10,000 others. And then each of those. So you get this massive model of, of interdependencies of small particulars. And when it works, 
it works really nicely. It can predict sometimes better than we can and, and classify faster or more accurately. That's why we use it. But these models that it's building for itself, which are in some sense a representation of the world, are not uh, don't rely upon coming up with general general formulas and the relation of, of incentives to sales. And it's millions of points in intricate, complex relationships with millions of points. That type of model seems to me to be a, a better representation of how the world works. We couldn't see that because our brains are too small, but now our machines can. They can handle all of these particulars without having to reduce them to, to some uh, generalizations or principles that are ones that we can understand. That is a way of envisioning and understanding and even working with the chaos of particulars in their relationship of everything to everything that is a powerful new model for us and very different from the one that we've had for a long time. But in the, in the case of a very relevant but very traditional offline business, dry cleaner, break shop, bakery, do they need to get on board with this, or are they going to be able to do just fine as a traditional dry cleaner, break shop, bakery? So uh, that's, a, that's a really good question. So if I had to guess, yeah, they're going to do fine. But they should also recognize that underneath their, the stability that guides them, that they rely upon, and we think it's, we think it's long-term stability, the world is nevertheless chaotic. And so it's quite likely, I would, I would guess, as I think you would too, that the local dry cleaner is going to do fine. The local dry cleaner, however, may also be disrupted by factors way beyond its control. Who knows what? Some local disaster or some change in laws or the shortage of this or that or change in fashion where people don't care about clothes that, you know, an invention of clothing that doesn't need dry cleaning. That sort of disruption is always there. It would be good to keep that in mind, even though there may not be much you can do about it. Right. And the, the, way, the way that you keep it in mind is try to stay, stay as involved in as much information overflow as you possibly can, because that's where you're going to see the early signals. You know what's scary about this in some ways is that if you go back 50 years and look into the future, nobody could have predicted the internet and what we have now and how it's changed, how business is done and all the things you've been talking about for the last 15 minutes or so, which makes you wonder what's, what's going to be in the next 50 years that we can't even begin to imagine. I mean, it just, it seems chaotic. Yeah, yes, yes, it is. Um, and it is scary, but it's also, I think, the truth. I think it's the truth of the world that we, we too frequently in our long histories as a species, we want to avoid. Um, but it, it is the truth. And I think it's in one sense getting worse and another getting better. It's getting worse in that it, we, because we now have tools that enable us consciously to mint new possibilities to create new possibilities, to uh, open source our stuff if we want to. Toyota just uh, recently open sourced its, its uh, electric car patents. That has the possibility, Tesla had done that before. That has the possibility of now suddenly 
much more progress, many more change, uh, new ideas in electric cars. And that's a, a generative type of change. That is, it's a change that produces more change. And we have be, been creating this type of generative technology, uh, especially on the internet, from, well, since the internet took off in the early 1990s, became, you know, came some, became something that everybody in businesses care about. So we are actually, I think, making, I, th I think we are actually making a world that is even less predictable than it was. On the other hand, the positive side of this is not only is, uh, do I think this chaos is the truth of the world, but we're able to do so much more because we no longer have to do everything ourselves computer games have been very early in making their technology reusable by users. It's called modding. And people have been doing it since the early 1980s, where you can take a game and you can change its map or its rules or how, you know, new equipment. The game makers frequently not only allow that, but they encourage it by making available the tools that their own developers use. And so if you're a game maker, you get the benefit of repeatable, you know, a game that has much longer lifetime. As a, as a culture, taking games as a cultural item, um, we get much, much more. Everybody can build on, it, on what everybody else has done. Well, I remember when people f were first talking about this, how users could put their own two cents in and help develop a product. And I remember thinking, and I'm sure everybody else thought, why would people do that? They're not getting paid to do that. Why would they do that? Nobody's going to do that. And yet everybody does that. Yeah. I mean, people care about the things that they, they that they buy. You know, it's not as, some stuff is just, you know, a transaction and you eat it and forget it. Um, but the stuff that we we care enough about to think about and that these days go online, maybe do a little reading that we have a, a human relationship with those objects. They mean something to us beyond their mere utility. So yeah, I mean, and always have, that's not new, but now we have an opportunity to find other people who also care about it and to learn from them and to joke with them and the rest of it. So it's not surprising. It's not surprising to me that customers want to do this. Yeah, you're probably right. It's just that b before the internet and before all the things that you've just been speaking about, we didn't have the ability to do that. It was just the old way of uh, Henry Ford's way of doing business. My guest has been David Weinberger, and he is the author of a new book called Everyday Chaos, Technology, Complexity, and How We're Thriving in a New World of Possibility. You will find a link to his book in the show notes for this episode of the podcast. Thanks, David. Oh, thank you, Michael. A new year is a good time to discover new interests. And if you have kids, a KiwiCo subscription will help your child discover something new all year long. As a subscriber, you get these very cool crates delivered to you that contain fun and innovative science and art projects and they have different ones for kids of different ages. We've been KiwiCo subscribers for quite a while now, and some of the projects that my son has created are a pinball machine, a safe, a hand pump, and the most recent one, he actually built the headphones I'm using right now in the studio. 
Encourage your child to be innovators and creative thinkers. They won't believe what they can build and accomplish with KiwiCo. As a parent, I know it's hard to find new creative ways to keep kids busy while stretching their imagination, especially now. KiwiCo does all the legwork for you. Get real, high-quality engineering, science, and art projects for your kids. And don't be surprised if you join in to help, as I always do, because these projects are so much fun. KiwiCo is redefining learning with hands-on projects that build confidence, creativity, and critical thinking skills. There's something for every kid, or kid at heart, at KiwiCo. Get 30% off your first month, plus free shipping on any crate line with code SOMETHING at KiwiCo.com. That's 30% off your first month at KIWICO.com, promo code SOMETHING. You've likely heard me mention and recommend the Jordan Harbinger Show podcast before, and the reason I mention it is, well, yes, Jordan advertises his show here, And he does that for strategic reasons. You see, people who like this podcast are bound to like his podcast. He and I have a similar philosophy. In fact, I just spoke with him on the phone yesterday to compare some notes. Look, I really want you to give the Jordan Harbinger show a listen. He covers a lot of topics with big-name guests like Seth Godin, Mark Cuban, uh, Kevin Systrom, one of the founders of Instagram, And Jordan's done really interesting episodes where he talks about his visits to North Korea, as well as how a professional art forger somehow made millions of dollars being chased by the feds and the mafia. So, as you see, there's a lot of variety, but one constant is Jordan's ability to pull useful pieces of advice from his guests. I promise you'll find something useful that you can apply in your life in every episode of Jordan's podcast. I enjoy the Jordan Harbinger show, and and I'm not saying that because he's advertising. It really is good. Search for the Jordan Harbinger show. That's H-A-R-B as in boy, I-N as in Nancy, G-E-R. The Jordan Harbinger show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Have you ever tried to solve a problem and fail at it? And then when you did find out what the right answer was, say, how did I miss that? It's happened to all of us, I imagine. Why? Why does it sometimes seem in retrospect that the answer was right in front of us and we didn't see it? Interesting question, and one that's been studied pretty thoroughly by Gordon Rugg. Gordon is a British researcher and author of the book Blind Spot: Why We Fail to See the Solution Right in Front of Us. Hi, Gordon. Hello, good to meet you. So give me an example, a good teaching example of how this happens. Yes, um, here's a a very simple example from market research. Market researchers will ask you, what do you think of this product? And they'll usually give you a scale from dislike at one end to like at the other end. And that looks perfectly sensible and reasonable. And it's a pig to analyze because you get a lot of answers that are in the middle and you don't know what that means. So what happens if instead you treat those as two separate questions? How much do you like this and how much do you dislike this? And when you do that, 
and then you plot those two sets of numbers against each other, suddenly you get a completely different way of thinking about the problem that had been staring market researchers in the face forever and that they'd missed. So what you find is that for a lot of products, they're low on both liking and disliking. They're harmless and they're boring and there's nothing very amazing about them. And at the opposite extreme, you get some products where people love the product and hate it at the same time. So, for example, if something's described as an exclusive resort, then that sends out the positive signal of very high quality, but also the negative signal of it might be very snooty and snobbish and unwelcoming. So by plotting those two things of liking and disliking separately, you can then start seeing what people's reactions are to your product or service or whatever, and you get a much richer idea of what you can do about it. So when I've taken that to some of the most prestigious companies in the world and shown them, um, <laughs> it was very gratifying and entertaining for me to see the double take that they did as they realized that they'd look right past that for their whole careers. And that's such a great question because no one ever asks you how much do you dislike something and it's probably a lot more telling um, or at least adds another layer of dimension to the answer rather than how much do you like this because because everybody wants to kind of be in the meaty part of the curve I guess absolutely and that sort of representation tells you what you have to do with your product. So if you're down in that low liking, low disliking, you have to add something to it. If you're in the high liking and high disliking, you have to subtract something from it. Another thing you can get is where some people love it completely and don't dislike it at all, and others hate it and don't like it at all. So it's what we call in the UK the Marmite effect. People either love Marmite or they hate it. You don't get anyone in the middle. So if you've got a Marmite product, then what you do is say, we'll focus on this market. We won't try and change the taste because if we do, we'll lose the people who love it. So very clear, precise guidance on what to do about your product or your service. It's interesting. I know you talk about how experts play into this and that part of the problem anyway is that people think, well, if, if you're going to find the solution, you get yourself an expert and an expert can find the solution, which often adds to the problem. But largely because they have influence, they tend to make the same types of mistakes that ordinary humans do. The trouble is that if the expert is designing something like a car or a medical intervention, then the scope for effect on ordinary human beings is much greater than if you or I made a mistake. What is it about being an expert that makes you miss the obvious? One thing that's a real problem is um, what's called strong but wrong errors. Those are errors where you do the familiar thing um, instead of the right thing. So an everyday example is if you go to work every day and you lock your office every time you go out the office door, which a lot of people do, you'll use your office key much more often than your home front door key. If you're in that situation, you will find yourself occasionally trying to unlock your home with your office key, but you'll never find yourself doing the opposite to that. You're doing the thing that's familiar. You get at, you're at a door, you need to unlock it, and you do the most common thing. 
So as an expert, you'll be dealing with familiar cases a lot of the time, like a doctor who sees a particular condition over and over and over again, and they see someone else with that con- the same symptoms, and there's a real risk that they'll make a strong but wrong error. So they're actually trained explicitly in strategies to overcome that risk. Well, it, and it's I think everybody can see that in whatever industry they work in or in any organization where people who know think they know, so they know, so they don't have to think too hard about it. Yes, exactly. And you also get a lot of assumptions that everyone has made for so long that they've become treated as just self-evidently true, like the disliking and liking thing. And so people just don't look at those things because they're so familiar. They look right past them at whatever is new and whatever is right in their face. Instead of going back several steps and looking at their key assumptions and seeing if those assumptions are still true. What's the mathematics of desire? There are regularities in people's um, aesthetics, the things that they like. So, for example, there's a sweet spot for height, and it's equivalent in ordinary English to pretty whatever it is. So if you're pretty tall, fairly tall, then you're viewed as more prestigious, more attractive, a whole load of things like that. If you're very tall, then you've gone too far from that sweet point, and you tend to be viewed as an oddity. And you tend to get the same distance from that average point cropping up over and over again as the sweet spot. So it's statistically about one to two standard deviations from the mean, which is the equivalent of fairly whatever it is. So you've got a sweet spot, for example, for petite women and a sweet spot for tall women, um, similarly with men. There's a lot of other things like that where there are regularities that people don't realize um, they're actually using. And this is what? Human nature? Is this... What is causing this? I'm fairly sure it comes down to the way that brains process information. the, The brains try to keep things simple. So an example is symmetry. People prefer symmetry but so do animals, right down to the level of insects. So bees prefer symmetry to non-symmetry. So it's clearly not a human culture thing. And I think the reason is that if you've got symmetry, then essentially you'll need need to remember half of what you're seeing, and then you can mirror image, predict what the other half will be. Whereas if you've got something that's asymmetric, you have to remember the whole of the image, so it's twice as much load. How else do we have blind spots that we might might not be aware of or that because everybody's had that experience of oh yeah obviously sure there it is and we missed it but but how how else does this show up in life One example is when you go to the ATM to take money out a very easy mistake to make is to take the money and walk away and leave the card in the machine That used to happen all the time with the very early machines. And the designers were software engineers and logical and rational. And they thought, what sort of person would leave the valuable card behind? (laughs) People like everybody is the answer. Um, 
what was actually going on was that the human brain, when it, the human went to the ATM, was thinking, I'm going to this device to get money out. And once the money was out, it had accomplished its goal. And taking the card after it got the money, that came after it had achieved its goal. There was no reason to remember that. So what they did was to redesign so that first you have to take your card and then after that you get the cash. So getting the cash is the last part of the transaction and then you've achieved your goal. And so you've designed out that um, human error. That's really interesting because who who hasn't done that? I mean, oh, so, so many people have done that. And, yes. and, and so understanding all of this, and it's really fascinating, but what's the big so what here? What do we take from this, and what can we learn from this? What's the, what's the big point here? I think there's two big points. One is that in everyday life, there's a lot of room for making things much better very easily, very low cost, like the example of the market researchers and liking and disliking, for example. There's a similar one I can tell you, which... Um, is about what's called expressive behavior versus instrumental behavior. Expressive behavior shows what sort of person you are. Instrumental behavior shows uh, is about getting a job done. And I've been working with people in the medical services on this because they get a lot of problems with doctor-patient or nurse-patient interactions. So when I told them about instrumental and expressive behavior, suddenly they could see how a lot of the problems they were getting was when there was a mismatch between an expressive patient, for example, who's saying, I'm so ill, I'm so worried. And they want a doctor who will be expressive and say, don't worry, it's all right. If instead they've got an instrumental doctor who says, statistically, you're likely to be fine. I'm going to do these things. Then the patient is going to be very uncomfortable because the doctor in their language isn't showing that they care. And conversely, if you've got an instrumental fact-driven patient who says, I want to know what to do about this condition I've got. And the doctor says, there, there, you'll be fine. Again, you've got a problem. So that very simple concept lets you teach the medics some simple stock phrases that you can use to handle the two different types of patient. And suddenly everything improves for everyone. So let's talk about the verifier method, because this is really interesting as it pertains to something called the Voynich Manuscript. And just briefly, the Voynich Manuscript is this book supposedly from the 15th century written in an unknown language, and codebreakers spent 93 years trying to figure it out, only to find out, and with your input as I understand it, only to find out that it was all a hoax. And what you call the verifier method comes into play here. It works for problems where probably the experts have got all the information that they need and they're still stuck because that implies that they're putting their answer together in the wrong configuration. So if you've got one of those cases, what you then do is look at the types of experts who are working on it because experts are only expert in their own tightly bounded area. And if they stray just a little bit out of that, they're no better than ordinary mortals. 
the, so in the case of the Voynich manuscript, for example, the people who'd been studying it were expert code breakers and experts on languages, but none of them was an expert on hoaxing. So when they said it can't be a hoax, their opinion wasn't worth any more than anybody else's. So you need to look at the types of expert who are working on the problem and see if there's any expertise gaps. Then what you can do is take their chains of reasoning and evidence and just spell them out step by step. And something as simple as that can suddenly start showing you that everybody is making this assumption. But where is it coming from? What's the evidence behind it? So an extreme case of that um, was um, in archaeology, where somebody tried doing that for the uh, um, literature and how to t- how to tell how old an animal was when it was slaughtered from its teeth. And he discovered that everyone had quoted previous researchers, who'd quoted previous researchers, who'd quoted previous researchers, and it all fanned back to just one paper in the 1800s which had got it almost right, but not quite. So if you look at the evidence that they're basing those assumptions on, you're quite often spot where there's suddenly a gap. Your example just now of of when they were looking at this manuscript for 90 years and they had language experts and they had all these experts determining it wasn't a hoax, but they didn't have a hoax expert. When you, as soon as you say that, it's like, well, of course. It's always easy with hindsight. Yeah. Yeah. Isn't that interesting that when, I mean, the moment you said it, like, you know, in 90 years, somebody didn't bother to find an expert on hoaxes and ask them their opinion? Researchers are human and humans are social animals. So if the consensus in your field is everyone's doing it this way, there's a lot of pressure on you to do it the same way as everyone else. Which has probably caused more mistakes and errors than anybody cares to admit. It's really great. It's fun to take a peek inside your brain because it works a little different than everybody else's, so I appreciate that. Gordon Rugg has been my guest. He is a British researcher and author of the book Blind Spot: Why We Fail to See the Solution Right in Front of Us. There's a link to his book in the show notes. Thanks, Gordon. Thank you very much. It's been a pleasure talking to you. You and I constantly make judgments about other people based on what we see them do. Humans do that, and we cannot not do that. And here are some common everyday actions that people use to make judgments about you, according to Travis Bradbury, author of the book Emotional Intelligence 2.0. Handshake. People associate a weak handshake with lack of confidence and an overall lackadaisical attitude. A firm handshake equates with being less shy, less neurotic, and more extroverted. Tardiness. Showing up late leads people to think that you lack respect and you tend to procrastinate, as well as being lazy or disinterested. How you treat waiters and receptionists. This has become a a common interview tactic that a lot of employers use. By gauging how you interact with support staff on your way in and out of the building, Interviewers get a sense for how you treat people in general. How often you check your phone. If you do it in the middle of a conversation, that conveys a lack of respect, attention, listening skills, and willpower. And then there's eye contact. Staring at someone is creepy, but maintaining eye contact about 60% of the time is just the right amount. 
And that is something you should know. If you're on Twitter, so are we. Check us out. We're at SomethingYSK. I'm Mike Carruthers. Thanks for listening today to Something You Should Know.